Well, we're in John chapter 20. Before we get to that passage, I want to read a section from Mark's gospel, chapter 9, uh, 14 through 29, maybe a familiar passage uh, to you here. Actually, through 23 is what I'll read, Mark chapter 9. So listen as I read. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd asked him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. In verse 19, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now the passage doesn't end there because there's an important phrase here that the father brings to Jesus in the midst of that. And you know this passage, right? You're probably thinking it right now as I'm turning here. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Belief, faith, big, big words for the Christian. Foundational words, what do they mean? What does it mean to have faith? How important is that for the Christian? And we're gonna look at this idea of faith this morning here as we are in John chapter 20. And so if you were in Mark, turn over to John. And I'm gonna read the entire chapter this morning. And uh, we're gonna mention a few things as we walk through this chapter. There's a lot there. But I wanna center on the idea of faith. So John chapter 20, starting at verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon and Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned and round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have, yet, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Madeline went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked to where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, or John, in writing this gospel, ends this gospel with a theme that's throughout. It's belief. What does it mean to believe? That word believe is, is littered throughout this chapter. But the idea of faith is, is seen in the people that are filled in this chapter. And every time that Jesus shows up in the chapter after he has risen from the dead, he's dealing with faith, with belief. We have John here in, in verse 8. He believes. Thomas, who comes to the meeting late, says he won't believe, and then he meets Jesus and believes without having his demands met. This confrontation with the risen Jesus is what brings faith for them. They had heard his teaching, they had seen his miracles, and they, they weren't changed up to that point, but they met the risen Savior and believe and are transformed. They are converted. And the Bible says the same thing for us. It's not enough to believe in his teaching or his miracles. No, you have to meet the risen Lord by faith. And if you don't, the power of God doesn't come into your life. You'll not be changed. There are those that may believe in Jesus' teaching, his miracles, his good works, but they really don't believe that he is Lord, that he actually rose from the dead. And if they don't believe that, they're not Christians. No matter what church they attend, no matter if they were baptized as a, a youth or as a child, no matter if they went forward at a summer camp, if you cannot believe what the Bible says about Jesus rising from the dead, then you cannot be a Christian. That's why 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who, who caused us to be born again? God, not us. And we're born into what? 
a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a new birth. There's no living hope. There's, there's no change for our life without the resurrection. The resurrection is crucial. That's why Paul can say in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You cannot divorce these two things. Faith meeting the resurrected Lord. And every time Jesus meets someone, he helps them believe. He helps John believe. He helps Peter to believe, as we'll see even in chapter 21. He helps Mary to believe. He helps Thomas to believe. And their principles, I, believe, I think, in, in this chapter of faith. And so we're gonna go through this, this chapter in a glossary way above here and, and, and look at some principles. We've been going through the Gospel of John for quite some time since January of 2016, and so we're, we're drawing to a close here, John's Gospel. And so I believe there's five principles that I wanna draw your eyes and your ears to this morning that deal with faith. Because without faith in the risen Christ, there is no power of God in your life. There's no new life, no new change. Faith is the key. So I'm gonna give the, the list here, and then we're gonna walk through them. First is faith is impossible. Faith is personal, faith is rational, faith is humbling, and faith is tangible. So we're gonna walk through that. Before I do, I'm gonna pray. God, I ask that you would speak this morning. I ask that I would be your mouthpiece, that your word would be what's heard by the people, that they would understand scriptures, that they would uh, receive what you have for them, that you would be the teacher, that you would be the guide, that you would bring understanding, that you would bring faith to your people this morning to, to know and understand what your word says. May you be honored and glorified by the preaching of your word here. And I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. First, faith is impossible. I believe we can see it clearly here in this chapter. You have Mary, John, Peter racing to the tomb. These are the same people that were with Jesus for most of his public ministry. They had seen him perform miracle after miracle. In this gospel, we see the water turning to wine, the feeding of 5,000 people or more, the healing, raising people from the dead. They had seen him walk on water and calm a storm. And throughout his time with them, he continually told them that he was going to die, right? That this was going to happen and that he would rise again. On the third day, he made this claim so often that even Jesus' enemies knew it. That's why they put a guard at the tomb. So we come to this Sunday morning and Mary walks to the tomb and sees that the tomb is open, the stone is gone. Now, now think with me. She has seen so much in the last three years, time and again, the miracles of Jesus. She has witnessed so much and has heard what he has said. She had heard time and again that he was going to die, that he was gonna rise again. And you might think after experiencing all of that, that she did now would, would understand as she walks to this tomb and sees that it's open and Jesus is gone. She would have probably, I, I would think then, on her own, say, Jesus has done it. He's fulfilled what he's promised to do. It seems like a rational response. 
But not just Mary. Well, you have Peter and John racing to the tomb. They had heard of what Jesus had said about his death and resurrection. They had witnessed his power over death, and they had peered into the tomb when Jesus raises Lazarus and calls him forth. And they had heard the conversation in that chapter with Martha about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. They were in the same boat here. They know what Jesus has said, and yet they, they can't believe. What's wrong with these people? Why is it they struggle to believe? And we could talk about it for a while this morning, but I'm just gonna cut to the chase. They, they struggle to believe because the Bible says that faith is impossible. It's not something you're capable of. Faith in the risen Christ has to come from the outside in. You, you cannot muster it up from the inside. And Jesus clearly says to us in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who has sent me draws them. Draws him, excuse me. This is the first principle. If anyone had the ability to believe on their own, it would have been these folks. They had witnessed so much firsthand. But they don't because faith comes as a gift, not as a work. What does this mean? It means that without God's help, you can't believe. The reason that faith is impossible is because unbelief is not a vacuum. Unbelief is not the absence of faith. It's also the presence of something else was challenged in my study this week with a passage kind of obscure in some ways in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11. Let me read it here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. Jesus is talking. He says, but, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, quote, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What is Jesus saying here? Anyone know? I believe he's talking about the stubbornness of children. That's not true for your kids though, right? <laughs> when a child doesn't get their own way, no matter what you do, no matter how you try to placate them or try to give it to them, it will not please them. You cannot make them happy. Have you ever seen this at all with kids? If you haven't, feel free to come by our house. It's when a child is upset because they haven't gotten their way. They didn't get what they were after and now they seem unruly. You know, they didn't get what they were, were, were wanting in that moment. Parents said no, but they have another option. Okay, Bobby, let's go to the park. You like the park. You can play in the park. You can run. I know you like playing in the park. And Bobby's response, I hate the park. You know they don't hate the park, but the child is convinced in that moment that they hate the park. And they're trying to convince you now that they hate the park. Okay, Bobby, if you, if you don't like playing in the park, fine. We'll just go, we'll just stay home. I hate staying home. And no matter how much you, you, you say it or couch it, the child will deny what really deep down they know to be true. Why? Why do they do this? It's because they're trying to get control back. Their control over what they wanted is, no, is now gone and they're desperate to try to get that control back. And listen, friends, this is the human heart. This is how the human heart works. It will deny and resist even what it most wants if it discovers that in order to get what it desires, it has to lose control of something else. There's a stubborn desire in every human heart to stay in charge. 
It wants complete control. It's easy and, and sometimes humorous to see it in children, but it's disturbing to see it in adults. It's the same issue, though. There's a section in, in Augustine's Confessions where Augustine says, the only reason children are cute is because they're too weak to do what they really want. <laughs> you can see it, you know. Augustine is right, the desire that... that the desire for total control. And it, we, we see this as cuteness. You take the one-year-old. If they have the power to do what they really wanted to do when you took that toy away from them, you would lose your head. <laughs> they wouldn't bat an eye. Jesus says in this Matthew passage, I liken this generation to stubborn children. It's, it's funny with kids. It's kind of cute, but with adults, it's not funny at all. The fact that we naturally deny the love of Christ. There's too many out there in, in the churches that say we just, we're, we're just longing for something in some ways, and we're just trying to searching and looking, but the scriptures don't line up for that. We naturally deny the love of Christ, which we really want, but we, we, we're not able to admit what we really want because if we admit it, we say it, we lose control. Faith is impossible because it's only Jesus that can give it. And Jesus is in the perfect position to give faith. He is the good doctor that not only gives the necessary medicine, but he knows everything about the patient. He knows the exact medicine that will help the patient. And this is the pattern that you see here in John 20 with each of the people involved in this passage, John, Peter, Thomas, Mary. Jesus knows exactly what they need. So faith is impossible without Jesus. Second, faith is personal. What do I mean here? Well, faith for a Christian is in, in a person, not in a principle. This is crucial and, and, and sets apart Christianity from any other religion. When you're Confronted with Christianity, it doesn't give you a general message of love and a general message of peace and justice. It isn't just a, a set of principles to follow. When John and Peter, Thomas and Mary heard Jesus' teaching, that didn't save them. And, and they could have experienced thousands of years of principles, but that would not have helped them with their greatest need. They needed to meet the person who conquered death for them. The person that brought their lives from defeat to triumph, the one who beat death. And I mention this because I believe there are too many Protestant churches in our state that, that, that say we can't really believe in the physical resurrection anymore. That's just a, a fairy tale. We, we live in 2017. We know that it's impossible. It's, that's not true. But, but these churches say we, we love people. We'll fight for equality. And we'll, we'll live by the golden rule and we'll try to be honest. And, and that's what we need and that's what we'll preach. And there's way too many churches in the Northwest and they make excuses for having convictions and strong beliefs in Jesus Christ. And they make excuses for the resurrection. They, but they really want nice people in their churches to do nice things for their neighbors. And they believe that this will change the world. And they're wrong. That's bunk. Friends, John, Peter, Thomas, and Mary had those principles. They knew them. They were practicing them. And they were still in defeat. 
It's because the Christian message is not a general theory or a bunch of moral principles. It's about Jesus. It's about the person who is God, who came to earth, who really lived a life, really died a death for us, really was raised from the grave. And until you see that, your life will not be changed. This is why so many churches continue to churn out faithless, defeated people because they're, they're relying on themselves to do it all when, when Jesus finished it for them. And until they see that, their lives will not be changed. Your friends, your coworkers, your family do not need a 12-step process to be a better you. They need Jesus. They need to see Jesus. You know, the New Testament refuses to talk to you about, about how you can live a successful life. It refuses to talk to you about what is good and bad and how to make the world a better place. It refuses to address any of those things in your life because what you need is to believe that Jesus is real and that he died in your place and he rose again. Nothing else in the New Testament will make sense unless you believe in Christ. And this makes sense. Think about this, friends. The Bible refuses to even deal with you until you believe that Christianity is not just a set of principles or to a better life or, or a philosophy of life. No, Christianity is not a moral set. It's a faith in a person. And unless he's at the center of things, unless he's the center of your thinking, nothing else I can tell you will make sense. And so there's a sense that the Bible refuses to talk to you about anything before you decide what you believe about Jesus Christ. And this is, this is logical. There's lots of people who want their teaching. They, they want the teaching. They want the to-do list so they can try to live the right way. And they don't want to think about the deepness of who Christ is and what he did. They don't want to think about or, or come to a conclusion about the resurrection or that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't want that stuff. They just want to know how to, how to live. How can I be successful? They, they want to know, how can I be happy? And the Bible says, that's nonsense. The teaching, the moral values, the purpose apart from the framework makes no sense. Here's an illustration. I don't know if it'll fly. I'll give it a try. You can let me know afterwards. You have two groups of students, and they're both preparing to sit down and take a three-hour test. Now, graduates, doesn't that sound like fun? Aren't you just itching to do that right now? And you go to the first group and you say, when the test is done, do you know what we're going to do with this test? When you're finished, bring this test up to me, the three-hour test, and I'm going to rip it in half, stick it in a can, and light it on fire. And then you go to the second group, and you say, when you're done with the test, do you know what you're going to do with this test? Bring it up to me. I'm going to grade it. And this test will be the basis whether you get into college or not. Now, do you think that will make a difference in how those two groups deal with the test? The first group will, will work, but it won't mean anything because when they're done, it's going to be burned. No one's ever going to see it. They won't know how they did. It's, it's pointless. But the other group, the same rules on how to take the test, but to them will make a world of difference. Remember when Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus' statement here demands that each one look at his life that they are living. 
Whoever lives a, a self-centered life looking to gain the comfort of the world, they will miss eternal life. But whoever gives up his self-centered life of rebellion against God, they will lose their life for the sake of Christ and will find everlasting communion with God. This is what it means when a sinner comes to repent and believe in the gospel. He has gone from unbelief now to believing that Christ is the Messiah. He is now believing that Christ is the ransom for his sins. He has turned away from the former way of thinking that he could do anything to please God and now is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that there is a God who has come to earth that you can know personally who will someday judge the earth. Do you believe that? Or do you believe there's no God? At least not one like that. And when this life is over, you'll, you'll die and rot in the earth. Do you think that will make a difference in how you live your life, whether you believe the one or the other? If you take out the person of Jesus Christ, you take out the meaning for life. You, you remove everything that brings purpose for life. So faith is personal. It's in Jesus Christ, not in principles. Third, faith is rational. Look at verse six. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. The word saw, S-A-W, there in the Greek is theoreo. It's a word where we get the word. It's a word, a Greek word meaning to theorize. You can probably understand what that means. It's to think hard, to reason out in a sustained way. And so what is Peter thinking hard about here? He, he looks at the grave clothes lying there, and he's reasoning. Where's Jesus? If he isn't here and someone took him, why would they strip him naked? And then take the face cloth and fold it up? If enemies were to take the body, they wouldn't leave the grave clothes behind with all the ointments and all the spices. One commentator, Michael Green, says, the way the linens were, were lying meant that they were still wound around but empty, as if the body had just passed through them like a chrysalis after a butterfly had left. So Peter is standing there, reasoning, thinking hard. Okay, the body is gone. Well, maybe, nope, that couldn't be it. Well, maybe this. Nope, that's not it. He, he's reasoning. He's, he's furiously thinking, trying to understand. And, and what is Peter doing? He's theorizing. He's, he's grappling with the evidence that's before him. And faith is, is more than thinking, of course, like commitment and love, but it's not less. Faith is not primarily a feeling. Faith may lead to feelings, but at first, faith is thinking about the truth. It's thinking out the truth. It's looking at the evidence. This is incredible because if the Bible only says that faith is impossible, then you would end up with this mystical idea like waiting for lightning to strike you. But faith is not mystical and impossible, but the result, not just impossible, but the result of God inter intervening into your life. It's also rational. It's a result of thinking. You reason what the Bible says. You read what the gospels say about Jesus. You're thinking things out, and you cannot be passive. This is what Peter and John do. This is John's response. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first because he's faster, obviously, right? Also went in, 
and he saw and believed. The word believed here is from the Greek word pisteveo. The word is also used with a preposition usually in the text meaning into, believed into. We're talking about belief that means believing into something, which means you don't have your mind convinced, but you actually believed into it. You have a new foundation and you rest on it. Do you remember in Acts 16, Paul is in prison and the Philippian jailer discovers after the earthquake and he runs and he sees that the doors are now flung open and that the bonds are unfastened. And what does he want to do in that moment? He wants to commit suicide. Do you know why? Why is he ready to end his life? Simply because everyone has faith into something. Everyone has a foundation, a rational belief. Everyone has to believe into something or you really can't live. And many in our world have believed into their career. Some have believed into their family. They've believed into their kids or their relationships. Some have believed into their looks or their status or their money. Something. You have believed into something. And why was this jailer about to kill himself? Because he had based his life on something. He had believed into something and it had to do with his job as a jailer. And now he had failed. They were all going to run free. This wasn't just a minor oopsie. This was a big deal. There was no coming back from this. The foundations of his life had been laid bare. For him, there was nothing else left to live for. And so he turns to want to end his life. He was ready to kill himself because he had believed into his ability as a jailer to perform his job well, and now it's gone. And he's about to do this horrific act. He hears a voice from inside the cells. And it's Paul, and Paul says here, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, get this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The danger is now over. What is he so upset over now? He realized that he was in trouble, that his life was in trouble. Because he had built his life on an insecure foundation. He, he realized that his entire life, the thing that he had believed into, that he had built his life around was a bubble and it could burst at any moment. And he realized by the power of God that this was no way to live. He needed to believe into something else. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Transfer your trust from being a great jailer to Jesus. 
Real faith is rational and foundational. Real faith means believing into him. Real faith means building your life on him. Paul writes for us, I know him whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep which I have committed to him. Do you see any intellectual detachment in those words? No. What is Paul saying? I am persuaded. I am committed. I have put myself into the bank of Jesus Christ. I have deposited myself. That's what it means to believe. John believed that day. John believes before he even sees the resurrected Jesus. He believes the evidence that he sees, the evidence of the grave clothes right before him. So faith is is rational. Fourth, faith is humbling. Look at verse nine. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. This is an important verse. If you remember earlier, I pointed out that Jesus had informed them time and again of what was going to happen. He would die and he would rise again. He would say it over and over to these men. He was going to die. He was going to die. He was going to die. And and guess what happens? Jesus dies. And what do they do? They freak out and they leave. They think, what just happened? And he told them over and over and over that he was going to die. Why would this surprise them? Well, they had a plan in their heads. And their plan was laid out, steps to to guide their thinking of what was to happen. And when Jesus would say these things, it didn't really sink in. It didn't fit into their plan. And here's their plan. Jesus really didn't have to die because they really weren't that bad. They really weren't that weak. They really weren't that needy. Jesus, no, in in fact, they... He needed to live and establish a kingdom because that would bring about what, what was needed is what they thought. So when Jesus would tell them he was going to die, this would, this would seem to them as, as foolish talk because it didn't fit into their plan. If you read the scriptures again, you can, you, you can tell me what happens when Jesus dies. They're shocked, they're destroyed, they're fearful and depressed. But over and over, Jesus would say that the Son of Man needed to die. And why do they react this way? Because each of them had a plan for Jesus and didn't line up. Some wanting a, a rule book for their life, how to be better, how to act the right way, how to think the right way. They, they wanted a moral teacher. Uh, others wanted the power back on their side. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted the Messiah to, to make their world a better place. People were being hurt and mistreated. And so when Jesus dies, they see it all as a waste. He really doesn't want to be my teacher. He really doesn't want to be my leader. And if you... you you see, if you really look at Jesus as a moral teacher, then you think you're good enough. As long as he tells you what to do and how you should do it, you know you can do it. You can try to do it. And if you really look at Jesus as a world leader, you think that the problem out there is those people in leadership positions, the ones that are bringing oppression and those that are corrupt. And if they can just be taken down and taken out, then all things will be well. But what you don't realize is how wicked and corrupt your own heart is. And your own heart, like my heart, is the reason why we have problems in the world. Sin. What I'm about to say right now, I want to say in the most offensive way possible. Until you see that you're wicked, that you're hopeless, that you're a helpless sinner, your faith in Jesus will just be a superficial faith. 
really won't have any faith. You'll be around Jesus, but you won't really know him. These, these disciples were around Jesus all the time. They didn't get it. That's why in verse 9 it says they hadn't understood what the scriptures said, that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand they couldn't see why he had to die because they didn't realize their own spiritual and radical and deep neediness. They didn't fully understand that they were helpless sinners. And most of you here maybe are raised in the church. or You've attended church for many years in your adulthood. And you maybe say, I've believed in Jesus for, for quite some time, but let me ask you, has your life been turned upside down because of your belief in him? I said this in the Sunday school hour, but do you ever weep when you pray, not because you're unhappy, but because you're happy? And I'm not just talking to the women here. I'm talking to the men. On Father's Day. You weep because you know who you really are before God. And you recognize the gospel. You see the gospel. You see the transformation in your life. Not because of you, but because of him. If you're not moved, if you've never been moved, it's probably because you don't know that Jesus had to die for you. You may intellectually understand, but you haven't been humbled by it. You haven't been brought low. You, you don't see your cosmic neediness. And because you haven't been humbled, you're still in denial of how weak you really are and how enslaved you really are and how utterly sinful you really are. Faith is humbling because it proves that we can't do it on our own. It's all of God. So we've looked at faith and it's impossible and personal, rational and humbling and last, faith is tangible. Now where do I get that? Well, there's a great place in verse 17 where Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. That word cling here in the ESV is meaning that, that Mary grabbed him tight now, there's no indication anywhere else in Scripture that would say that she wasn't allowed to touch him. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, where others come other to, to see Jesus and grab Jesus, and he doesn't say anything to them. So it's not some magical thing here. It's not that Mary was holding him and doesn't allow him to ascend to the Father, like somehow she prohibited him to do that. No, I believe he's talking about intimacy here. He's saying to her, Mary... You want intimacy. You want my arms around you. You, you, you don't want me to leave you. I, I know you are scared and you think this is the best it's going to get and, and you don't want to let go, but I need to ascend to my father because you're going to get something better. You think better than Jesus? You know, they all had experienced the love of Christ personally, right right next to them, individually, the intimate friendship and love and closeness. But none of them at this point had experienced it in their hearts. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to my Father. I'm gonna sit at the right hand and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And now that Holy Spirit will come and he'll live inside of you forever. The tangible, concrete presence greater than anything you've ever experienced here on earth. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He's talking about his prayer life and he said something. He says, sometimes in prayer, we've known what it is to be happy to live. Sometimes I've had to ask him to stay his hand because the love, the glory, and the joy were coming into my heart in ways too great to bear. Mary had never really had that. Jesus says, if if I go to my Father and you exercise the faith that I give, you'll, you'll be able to have me, literally have me. Do you have him? You know, we come to the end of the chapter, we have Thomas facing the Lord and he's put conditions on his faith. He will only believe if he can touch the wounds, if he can place his hands on him. And Jesus shows up and Jesus says, you wanted to touch me? Well, go ahead, here I am. And if you look carefully, Thomas doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Instead, he says, my Lord and my God. And what happens is that Thomas looks at Jesus, looking at his wounds and realizing that he's been foolish And then he's put conditions on his faith. He doesn't touch him. He doesn't need to. The audacity of it. It's like a flea trying to take an elephant for a pet. I'll obey you if you explain this. If you tell me why this happened. If you you promise me this or that. or, Or you promise me that this will never happen again. And friends, isn't that what some of your problems are? You want to believe conditionally. And what does Thomas do? But he drops his conditions. And you'll never find Jesus unless you drop your conditions. Thomas looks at Jesus, looks at his wounds, and comes to grips with the one who has fully given himself for him. So how can he not fully give himself for Jesus? Circling back that passage, that story with the father and his son, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we're, like, we're all like that father reading Mark's gospel. And are those of you this morning here that have not experienced new life, pray that God would grant faith that you would believe, that you would trust him And as believers here this morning, that we would continue to trust him in all of life's circumstances. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the challenge of your word. And I thank you for the gospel of John that has been such a blessing to me in my life as we've walked through it these many months the promises that we can read throughout this gospel, the hope that we see, the gospel that's there, that's put forth. 
Father, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that have never trusted in you. God, I ask that you would give them faith to believe. They would turn from their former life, believe in you alone. Help us, God, to be faithful with this gospel as we go forth, to proclaim it in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, we present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.